Today's show is brought to you by LaserAway. Adulthood Made Easy listeners can save up to 75% off laser services at LaserAway. Go to laserAway.com slash A-M-E now to schedule your free consultation. This episode is also brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is an exciting new lingerie brand that uses real women's measurements to create better-fitting bras. Try Third Love's best-selling 24-7 t-shirt bra for free for 30 days. Start the Try Before You Buy program now at www.thirdlove.com easy. from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. If there are two topics I think we'll always be able to talk about on this show, it's money and dating. And then if I think that there's one topic that we'll always be able to talk about with my friends, it's dating. It seems like even if everyone was living their happily ever afters, we would have so much to talk about, whether it's what dating app we're currently using, whose boyfriend we do or don't like, who's getting married, who's not, who's, you know, broken up their marriage, whatever it might be, the state of love and dating in our culture is something that I think will always, always fascinate me. So a book hit my desk um, the other day called Labor of Love by Maura Weigel, and I just felt like that would be the perfect thing to give me some answers about the crazy world of dating that we have today, especially because the subtitle of the book is The Invention of Dating. And I've always wanted to know where all of these rituals have started and what people early, early on would think of Tinder today. So I've invited Maura to come here today to talk about The Invention of Dating and her book. She is a writer. She, is, like I said, is the author of Labor of Love. And her writing has also appeared in The Guardian, The New Republic, The New Inquiry, among others. She's currently completing a PhD in comparative literature at Yale University. And after years of first-person research on dating, she is off the market. But we will talk to her anyway, even if she's off the market. I, too, am off the market. So we'll just have two marketless people discussing dating. So welcome, Maura. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I just think that the fact that you tackled the invention of dating is awesome. And I because I I wouldn't even know where to start with like who had the first date. But what made you what made you really want to take a deeper dive into dating? Was it all of this? First person research, as you said, or or what make what made you want to kind of take this historical look at it? Well, I suspect that the way you were saying, you know, with your friends, with your family, it's sort of an endless source of fascination. Uh, that I was fascinated by it, the way lots of people are. But more specifically, I think around 2012 or so, I was in graduate school working on my PhD. I was dating. And uh, I was reading all these articles about, you know, the death of dating or the death of mm-hmm. romance. I think in the space of uh, like six months, there was a book called The End of Men, yes. another book called The End of Sex, and then this big New York Times article on The End of Courtship. So, <laughs> so basically uh, everything's over and that's the end of the podcast. So thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so basically I think, you know, both as a single person at the time and then also as a historian, you know, I didn't want to believe these ideas and I also found them a bit suspect the way – Articles often make it sound like, you know, there was one way people 
met and mated for all of human history until Tinder was invented and now we're doomed. Like I wanted to push back a bit against that, mm-hmm. that kind of panic. Uh, so that was what, you know, led me to want to to investigate what dating was, if it was ending. Now, were you investigating dating and actually dating at the same time? Or by the time you started your investigation, you were you were done with the actual dating part? It's funny because I guess I was starting my investigation when I met my now husband. And so I guess I was sort of off the market while actually writing the book, which is funny. I actually still had all these apps, which I used for research. (laughs) I would always feel a bit ethically conflicted. I probably shouldn't. I'm morally compromising myself right at the beginning (laughs) of the podcast. That's what this whole show is about. (laughs) Moral compromise. Yeah. So it was a funny thing because, you know, I joked, sometimes people say, well, you're married. What do you know about dating? And I say, you know, I spent 10 years researching this book. Right. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, yeah, I wasn't really playing the field at the same time that I was immersed in dating history. I was sort of actually finding the calm and courage to be close to someone (laughs) and give up on some of my earlier games. But yeah, anyway, it was a bit uh, asynchronous, unsynchronized in that sense. Well, do you think that, I mean, do you see any correlation by like you looking at dating from a more mindful, historical, practical perspective and maybe the way that you looked at your own dating life kind of happening at the same time? Just today, I'm rather critical of the dating advice franchise, The Rules, in my book. I think it offers terrible advice to people. Um, And just today, the authors of The Rules started trolling me on social media because I guess they discovered this. Mm. And, uh, And all the comments are about how I have no useful tips and how I'm clearly just a bitter single person, which happens not to be true, although I don't think, you know, the validity of my argument depends on my being single or not single. Right. Um, But it was striking to me, and I haven't responded to them yet, but it was striking to me that actually it was precisely when I stopped engaging in all this sort of game playing and self, I think self-hatred, I could talk about that, but the kind of anxiety Mm -hmm. that most mainstream dating advice produces that I found it possible to actually, you know, enter a good relationship with someone. So I don't think that's entirely coincidental. I do think there's some use, even though I'm not going to tell you like how long to wait to respond to a text or something. I don't have a prescription about that. Right. Well, I think that that's, that brings up an interesting point and something I wanted to ask you about is that obviously the advice around dating has changed a lot, basically because the point of being in a relationship has changed a lot. The way people look at finding a partner has changed a lot. So to me, dating advice isn't even a real thing because it's such a per- – now it's become such a personalized experience. How can – like we can take your example. How can – how long one person waits to text someone back – even be valuable to another person? How can what one person looks for in a, you know, in a potential partner be the same for another? Like, I mean, what do you think about the dating advice and dating expert world overall, since you've really taken a look at at the industry? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, one point that I'm always keen to stress about the book is that the invention of dating, which happens around 1900, and I could talk about that, but I always say the invention of dating is the invention of the crisis of dating or the death of dating. And throughout the history of dating, which is about 100, 115 years long now, you see advice experts saying, oh my God, you know, what are the young people doing? They're doing it all wrong. Young women in particular are in trouble. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. What's striking to me is, and sorry if this is a bit of a tangent, but when I read a lot of advice books from the 1800s, from sort of the Jane Austen era, 
before dating when you would meet people through your family and meet people sort of supervised by your parents. And it was very striking to me that in that advice, the tone of voice of all those advice books is very straightforward. It just says, here's how things are done. There is this clear ritual for how you do it. The man comes, he will leave his top hat in the in the closet. And so it's interesting. But then what you get, as soon as you have women uh, working in public and having the agency, the ability to go out and meet people on on their own, you have all this advice that says, you know, women, you know that you want things and you're allowed to go outside your house now, but you have to pretend that you don't. Right. <laughs> oh, and that you can't, you know, you're incapable of making a phone call or something. And so anyway, an interesting thing is that throughout the history of dating advice to more and lesser degrees, I think you often see this kind of anxious, suspicious tone that you see in so much contemporary dating advice where it's saying, you know, it might seem like you want to do this, but do the opposite. You know, you think you want to do this, but don't. And uh, I think that most mainstream dating advice, like most blockbuster dating advice, tells men and women, especially women who are straight, that the mind of members of the opposite sex is like this great mystery because uh, they want exactly opposite things to you from you and that, you know, d- you need dating advice to unlock the secrets of that right. other mind. You know, surprise, surprise. Right. And I just think it's not true. I mean, I think it's based on really outdated ideas about gender roles. I think that it's terrible. I mean, you know, the cliches of that industry, whether it's the rules or Steve Harvey or whomever, or, you know, the game, the game in a funny way is just the mirror image of the rules. Uh, But the takeaway for women is always that you need to repress your emotions, not express what you're feeling, not be direct about your desires. And I think this is terrible for women for fairly obvious reasons that it teaches you to ignore everything you want and not to go after it. And you've seen that since, like you said, the you've seen that 1800s to 2016. That's kind of the overarching theme that you've seen. Is it still always the idea of like, don't come on too strong, play hard to get, you know, be coy about it, that whole thing, the whole time. Yeah, I would date it a little bit later. I would say I really saw that taking off in the advice around the 1920s, which is when you first start to have large numbers of women going out on their own. And I really think, you know, not to be too old school feminist about it, but it is this way of warning women that if you don't play this old subservient role or this passive role that no one will love you, which I don't think is true. I think it's extremely stressful for men also, this idea that, you know, the only person who can express desire in a heterosexual relationship is the man Mm -hmm. and that the man's solely responsible for sort of how things unfold. A friend pointed out the other day, she said, you know, a man makes a proposal, but a woman gives an ultimatum that it's like only a man can sort of propose moving forward, whereas a woman is always sort of reactive. And I just think it's not necessary. It's not true. And I think because it's not true, it creates this kind of anxiety around the sort of theatrical element of it. So anyway, I think, you know, I think that a lot of a lot of the sort of most famous self-help on the market is not very useful for anything but selling more self-help. Normally, I'm all about warm weather and summer and going to the beach and being outside, but I will say a major downside of the warm weather is that you actually really have to pay attention to shaving your legs. And I am the type of person who really doesn't like spending all that extra time shaving your legs, all the extra money on getting new razors, all the extra money on Band-Aids for when you cut yourself around the ankle. And did you know that it's ranked as the most hated beauty ritual? 
Well, good thing our friends at LaserWay have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, LaserWay offers the most advanced cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic, permanent results in just a few treatments. LaserWay's treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, carefree, and ready for that beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laserway.com slash A-M-E. That's laserway.com slash A-M-E. So I'm I'm really interested in the like the the first date and when dating started to come about. So not that you can not that you were there at the very first date, but we know today what a traditional date looks like, like in a very, very traditional stereotypical sense, which is that the guy will, you know, take it's like dinner in a movie is still kind of the like the trope of what dating is. But do you have any sense of like what the earliest first date would have looked like? Like I imagine movies weren't always invented. <laughs> so dinner in a movie couldn't have always been the solution. So what what did the first date look like? Yeah, well, so it's so one one thing that was one of my favorite facts that I discovered in all my research was that, you know, I say the first date happened in 1896, which I'm joking a little bit about, but the first time in the print record historically mm-hmm. that we see someone using the expression to make a date in the way that we now say dating, you know, or having a date was 1896. And at first, it was thought to be, and in some senses was, a kind of prostitution. Mm. And practice really takes off in the 1890s and early 1900s in America, because you have all these women who are moving to cities to work, and they're living away from their parents and families in many cases. And so this practice of letting a man invite you out to dinner was sort of motivated by necessity. And what's funny is that what we now think of, as you said, as the most traditional date imaginable, a man asking a woman out to a hot meal somewhere, uh, was actually thought to be a form of prostitution. And lots of young women were arrested or brought before the Vice Commission uh, for letting men buy them dinner, at least brought to social workers. So I think that even at the very, very beginning, there never really is a traditional form. It's a thing that's always in flux. Well, so Uh, early on it was dinner in jail and now it's dinner in a movie. (laughs) It's like Netflix and chill is the new dinner in jail. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think – and then there were other things like a lot of young people in the early 1900s in cities like New York or Philadelphia or Chicago – would go out to parks. There were a lot of parents who, you know, wouldn't let their kids go to the dance hall, but would let them go to the park because they thought, how bad could it be in the park? Right. Very, very bad sometimes. (laughs) Trees are around. Everything's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that dance hall's political clubs. I mean, it's a funny thing to think about in an election year, but politics was often a way that young people in certain demographics got to know each other. Mm. Amusement parks like Coney Island and boardwalks were really popular. Movie theaters, as you say, uh, they called them Nickelodeons because it only cost five cents to go and it was dark. <laughs> I'm going to cha- gonna challenge you to do something and that I'm totally putting you on the spot. But you think about a, a normal dating profile today. Says yes. where you work, says your favorite shows on Netflix, says I love fries and pizza and I'm addicted to House of Cards and I work at this bank and – you know, I love my family. What do you think a dating profile would have looked like? Or what do you think would have been the important qualities back, we'll say, in the 1900s? Like what were the – obviously, 
like I said, Netflix wasn't invented yet. So that's a tough comparison. But like that's what we're looking at now. You know, it's it's what you like. It's finding likes in common. But what was important then? What would a profile have looked like back then? I think that in the early 1900s, it might have said things about what places you like to go out to, about where you worked, which was always important. In the teens and 20s, you start seeing a lot more interest and a lot more companies that sell sort of cheap fashion and makeup. And it's different than a profile, but it definitely was a way that people would advertise, you know, their taste and what they were interested in uh, and present themselves. You know, now we do it through our likes we talk about on dating profiles, then you might do it through having a particular kind of dress or imitating the look of a certain movie star, that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, the medium people expressed it in was different, but there were, you know, there were other ways that people showed what they liked, which we know is supposed to show us what we are like in theory. Right. And you know what I think is, think of it's interesting. You'd mentioned obviously work is very important. And obviously the name of the book is Labor of Love. So it makes it sound like this world of dating is kind of a job. And yes. sometimes you hear that and sometimes you don't. But why Why did you choose the word labor and and how much of a job do you think it really is? Well, there were sort of three reasons. And the first one I've already alluded to, it maybe should have been obvious to me. But before I started my research, it never occurred to me this whole idea of dating is completely predicated on women working outside the home. That's sort of the moment in history when you get young people meeting and mixing on their own for the first time is when women enter the workforce. So that was sort of the first way that I was interested in work. It's because the history of dating really overlaps with the history of women's work. Uh, the second reason was that it changes, you know, as you were suggesting earlier, it constantly changes with the economy. Uh, How we date changes depending how we work, you know, back in the, in an old timey movie, a guy might've said, I'll pick you up at seven because everyone got off work at five and that gave you time afterwards. I mean, now we work such different kinds of hours. We work more hours. We work later. Of course we text each other and say, you know, you off, you up. (laughs) Uh, And that's, uh, it's not that different. You know, I think often changes like that, are interpreted as meaning that, you know, romance is over, courtship is over. To me, it's a very logical consequence of, you know, the patterns of how we work. It's just the same way to me. Tinder is just an Uber for dating. You know, we live in an on-demand economy and that shapes how we approach personal relationships too. Um, And that like brings me to sort of the third thing, which is a bit more nebulous, but that I think these the ways we work, it's not just that they shape the pragmatics, like when we have time to meet or where we can go, but it also shapes the way we think about our feelings. And I guess, you know, again, with the Tinder Uber comparison, like it's no accident that a generation that's told to be flexible and never count on a gig being fixed or lasting, you know, it's no Mm -hmm. accident that the generation of the unpaid internship is the generation of hookup culture. You know, it's the sort of flex time version of romantic relationships. And so I was interested in that sort of how a lot of the changes in how we feel about our lives and how we pursue our desires or love are influenced by by the economy in ways that we might not always think about. Yeah, I imagine that colleges and universities as as more people were attending more women were attending that completely through the dating world for a loop because 
like parks, <laughs> parks are dangerous. <laughs> then you put a bunch of a bunch of young people on a college campus, and like that changes the way that you have relationships with other people too. It's just interesting to think about something that we kind of see as like just a, an all you need to do is open an app on your phone. Actually, has like a really long history, and and people have been doing it for years and years and years, and they've been complaining about it for years and years and years. I imagine too. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally true. And I really love uh, I love the example of colleges in the 20s and 30s when you first start having a lot of women going to colleges or co-ed colleges because those totally redefine romantic relationships and dating relationships. And they're a source of a tremendous amount of anxiety. I mean, it's really funny if you watch old movies from the 1920s Hollywood introduced what was called the Hayes Code, which had a lot of rules about what films could show in 1934. But if you watch movies from before 1934 about college life, a lot of them are really wild. You know, <laughs> the uh, the phrase sexual revolution was coined about the 1920s first. It came comes from the 1920s. And uh, I was recently rewatching a movie called the Wild Party with Clara Bow, who was this great movie star of the twenties. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I think it's from 1927, the film. And there's a scene where she kisses three different guys at one party on camera, and she's wearing a very short skirt. You know, so anyway, parents were totally worried about that stuff in the 1920s. They were also worried. I like to really, and that's what people complain that like my generation does. And so I'm just going to point them to that classic 1920s movie and tell them to yeah. l- leave my generation <laughs> alone because it's all Clara Bow's fault. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. And I'd also say, if you're looking for another tidbit to throw to the olds, um, that all all the rigorous sociological data on the subject suggests that people in college in the 80s and 90s had more sexual partners than kids in college today do between matriculation and graduation. So this idea that young people are just becoming more and more promiscuous, sort of in a straight straight line down to hell all through history is just completely un- completely false. I remember the first time I went bra shopping and I was so embarrassed. A, because I don't, I'm not a huge fan of shopping. I would much rather buy things from the comfort of my own bed. And B, because finding a bra that actually fits and feels good is really, really hard and frustrating. And that embarrassment and frustration has carried with me long into adulthood. And I'm embarrassed to say that even as a real simple editor, I have owned bras for much longer than you should. I think you're supposed to get new ones that, you know, don't stretch, don't fade, don't have strings going everywhere. And yet I just feel like once I find one good bra, I'm never going to find a bra that fits again. So I kind of abandon it. Well, Third Love has a 24-7 t-shirt bra that is amazingly comfortable. I've tried it. It's super smoothing and invisible under every outfit. The cups are made out of memory foam, so it molds to your shape to truly give you the perfect fit. Now, this bra came to my apartment, and I tried it on, and it fit perfectly. And I am really wary about buying bras online. I feel like it's something that you need the person who has the ruler, who puts it around you, not with third love. It was seamless under all of my outfits. I tried it with multiple different things. It fit under everything. It was really comfortable, and it just felt good. And Third Love stands behind this 24-7 t-shirt bra so much that they're willing to let you try it for free for 30 days. Go to thirdlove.com easy to get started. 
There's a lot of anxiety around dating. We read articles every day that, right, dating is dead. None of us are ever going to get married or find anyone. We're all going to die alone because dating is horrible and hookup culture has ruined everyone's lives. But (laughs) if you do the research and read something like Labor of Love by Maura Weigel, you see that there's – that. That it's just kind of a cycle and every generation thinks that the the younger generation is ruining dating and somehow the human species continues and dating must be working some way because people are still, you know, getting married, having children. And that's why I'm really encouraged by your book. And I think a lot of people will feel similarly. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that having clarity about that cycle helps people, at least help me feel less sort of completely anxious all the time, which I think, you know, is very good for, it's very good for dating apps that, you know, the value, whose value depends on our playing them all the time or using them all the time for us to be anxious. Yes. It's not very good for us to be anxious. I don't think, I don't think it's a for relationships. Totally. So that clarity is helpful. Yes. And I just want to thank you again for joining the show today. It was great to have you. And I want to remind everyone it's called Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating by Maura Weigel, which you can get at this point wherever books are sold and read up on dating and be able to really just go into your go into your next Tinder session or hinge session with confidence, <laughs> which is what it's all about. Get some of those stats to throw back at your parents. There you go. It's all about statistics. Well, thank you, Maura. I really appreciate your time today. And you are just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much, Sam. That was Maura Weigel, author of Labor of Love, which you can get wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Sam Zabel and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to review and subscribe in iTunes. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>